Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to remind everyone attending in person to silence their cell phones and encourage anyone watching online or on C-SPAN to email questions to speaker at heritage.org. Hosting today's program is Niall Gardner. He is the Director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom and the Bernard and Barbara Lomas Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Niall? Thanks very much, uh, Andrew, and uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Steve Hilton, uh, the host of the popular Fox News uh, show, The Next Revolution, which broadcasts from the West Coast uh, every Sunday night. Uh, I think I was going to say number one on Sunday night. Ab- absolutely. Definitely number one on Sunday nights, uh, Steve. Um, And uh, Steve was the director uh, of strategy for former Prime Minister David Cameron and one of the most influential British conservative political advisors of the last decade. Uh, Since moving to uh, the United States in 2012, he has taught at Stanford University uh, and founded a political technology startup uh, with the mission of fighting big money in politics and putting power in people's hands. He is the author of more Human, Designing a World Where People Come First, a UK Sunday Times bestseller in 2015. Uh, Steve studied politics, philosophy, and economics at New College, Oxford University. Uh, he's been a prominent uh, supporter of Britain's exit from the European Union. And I've had the pleasure of speaking alongside him on a number of Brexit panels. Uh, his latest book is Pops- Positive Populism, Revolutionary Ideas to Rebuild Economic Security, Family, and Community in America. Please join me in welcoming Steve Hilton. Thank you very much, Nar. Thank you all for coming along. Um, Thanks for watching, wherever you are. Um, It's a great pleasure and an honor to be here. And and Nar, as you mentioned, I think the first time we met in person was was the Brexit um, discussion that we had. I think it was a few months before. Yeah, just before the uh, the actual vote. That's right. And it was just just very exciting to, um, to be talking about that with the knowledge that it really might happen, and, and, and it was just a very exciting moment. And it's wonderful to see you again, and thank you, as I said, for, for asking me along today. I, I'd, I'd like to talk um, about populism, um, and I'm going to get into some details in a moment, but I just wanted to set out really why I've written this book, Positive Populism. And the main thing I wanted to achieve with it is to try and um, define it a little bit, because we hear this word populism, It's been thrown around a lot in the last few years, and it's been attached to all sorts of political phenomena all over the place, actually starting with Brexit. That really was the first moment when, in the the recent incarnation of populism, 
people really started talking about it as a force. And then, of course, the election of Donald Trump, but the Bernie Sanders campaign as well. And now we're seeing the label applied throughout Europe with various political um, uh, contests um, subverting perhaps the, the old order as it's often described. So this word populism is out there and some people think it's positive and some people think it's negative. Um, and uh, what I really wanted to do was to give it a bit of coherence and to uh, focus really not just on what it's against. I think what is probably clear to a lot of people is what populism is against. It's against the elites and it's against open borders immigration and it's against the trade deals and so on. There's a little list of things that that people often think populism is against. What I'm trying to do in this book is say, well, what is it for? What is the agenda, the coherent agenda for a positive populism? That's the purpose of the book. The reason I think it is needed, and also the reason why this movement, whether it's splintered in different directions, some on the left, some on the right, whatever, the reason you're seeing this emerge as a really powerful political force I think is the place I'd like to start. Why are we even talking about populism? Why is there this populist movement? And I think that the simple answer to that and, and, and the argument I make in the book is that what we've seen for the last, um, more, than, more than the last few years, the last few decades actually, is, and I think the voters are very conscious of this and it ties directly to the Brexit vote and the Donald Trump uh, success here. It seems to a lot of people that regardless of who's actually been elected, who's won elections, the same people and the same agenda seems to be in power. That's the very strong sense people have. It doesn't matter who you vote for. The rich get richer, we get screwed. Now, that may be a simplistic slogan. That's how a lot of people feel. I would argue there's a lot of truth to that because if you look at the continuity in the UK, for example, from the Thatcher government, to the Blair administration, to the Cameron government, you know, they're really, they're, of course, there are policy differences, but there's a common agenda in four key respects. And I think that also applies here in the US when you look at the continuity from Reagan to Clinton, Bush and Obama. And that ties in with some of the data around this. And one of the most fascinating, I think, in fact, I put it right at the beginning of the book, is that when you look at one key element of this um, Populist resent, pop, resentment fueled populism, let's call it that. It's the sense of inequality and particularly income inequality. And if you look at wage stagnation, again, a term that we hear described a lot, that's not just a phenomenon of the last few years since the Great Recession. If you look at the 80% or so of non supervisory workers in America, non management, non supervisory workers, looking to the lab, labor board statistics, basically, up to 2016, wages had been flat or falling since 1972, 44 years of flat or falling wages for roughly 80% in real terms, roughly 80% of American workers. That's a staggering fact. And so it ties in with the period when you've seen a continuity of policy and the four key elements of this shared agenda, as I would describe it, between Republicans and Democrats, between Labour and Conservative in the UK, there are four key elements to it that I, I talk about in the book. One is, and, and it's really, an, it's not so much a policy uh, similarity, it's an enthusiasm for four things that have shaped the modern world. One is globalization, another is automation, 
third is centralization, centralization of government, um, taking power from local and state government here in the, in the US and putting it in the hands of the federal government, same kind of pattern in the UK. Also centralization, by the way, in the economy, as you've seen corporations getting bigger and bigger, giant businesses emerging, um, squeezing out competition, oligopolistic markets in, in industry after industry. And then the fourth element is immigration, a sense of uncontrolled immigration. Those four things, globalization, automation, centralization, immigration, I think they're the key um, characteristics of a shared agenda, a shared ideology I describe it as, which I call elitism. Why do I call it elitism? Because it's very clear that the people at the top, roughly, not the famous 1%, but roughly the 20% or so, have done incredibly well over these years that this agenda has been pursued. We have done incredibly well. Incomes have gone up, property prices, look at the booming urban centers of the knowledge economy. It's, it's been a real success for some people, but actually for working people, the 80% or so, it hasn't. Jobs gone away, incomes gone down, communities ripped apart as the employers move out, family breakdown, the whole set of things. And I think all of that together has given rise to this populist sentiment. And I've written this book to try and address that sentiment with positive, constructive policy reforms rather than just rage. So that's the background. Um, the characteristics of positive populism, as I set them out in, in my book, uh, first of all, that to me, it's, it's something very pragmatic. It's about solving problems. I think that was one of the great appeals, frankly, of Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. He came across as a non-ideological politician. I'm just a business guy who's going to solve problems. Now, you can argue about whether or not that's been done, but, but that approach, I think, really resonated with people. I think that's part of the, the populist um, approach, which is we're not driven by um, ideology. We're driven by helping working people, working families improve their lives. And we're looking for practical solutions. And that's very much the spirit of, of, of this book. More specifically, um, when I think of positive populism, I really think of, well, who, this, this practical, pragmatic, non-ideological approach, who is it trying to help? It's not trying to help everyone. It's actually trying to help the people who have been hurt the most by this elitist ideology that's been in operation for the last 40 years or so. So I see it as being pro-worker, pro-family, and pro-community. And those, I think, are the key elements of the agenda. What I'd love to do now is, having talked generally about it, just to get the conversation going, and I won't go on for too long. I'd love your responses and questions and arguments and challenges, I hope. Um, could just give you a couple of examples from the book. The book is really an ideas book. It's got some personal stories about how I came to these views and my work in government and starting businesses and moving to California, my background in Hungary, my parents are Hungarian and so on. So there's a lot of personal um, background to it. But really, above all, it's an ideas book. There are, in fact, 27 specific ideas in this book um, to address the problems I've outlined. They're not work, fully worked out policies. That's why I call them ideas. They're really to start a conversation. Because I think turning around the 
these, these long-term trends, income inequality and wage stagnation and family breakdown and community disempowerment, all the things I've talked about, corruption in government, which is a big part of it, it's going to take a long time because it's, been a take, it's, it's taken a long time to get to where we are. So these are ideas to start a conversation. I just want to pick out four um, and quickly sketch them out to give you a flavor of, of what I'm talking about. And, and there are, th these four ideas are in four of the key policy areas that we all think about a lot in, in our different ways, in our different worlds, on education, health, welfare, and family, pretty central topics. I just want to start with schools. What's a positive populist have to say about schools? Well, the first principle of this populist approach that I'm setting out is that this concentration of power that I've talked about, that I talked about earlier, is one of the defining characteristics of the elitist age. That power's been taken away from individuals and communities and centralized in the hands of big businesses and bureaucracies and so on. People don't have control over the things that matter to them. And that was a key factor, I think, in the Brexit vote. So people power, putting power in people's hands is a key theme throughout this book. That's very relevant to the school idea that I'm going to talk to you about. The other factor is the, the, the way that social mobility has completely stalled in America. If you look at the data, that, that, that story of people being able to rise up the income scale through education and so on, that's, that's really a story of the past. And so what we've got to do is rethink our approach to schools and education and training, all the things that the ladder of opportunity, because it's just not working. And it will get worse and worse because of the nature of the change in the labor market and the kind of skills that, that people will need to succeed, the fact that jobs are going to be much more temporary and, and so on. And the, and the kind of skills that people need to le learn are just going to change dramatically. School, the current school system that we have is simply ill-equipped to do that. Of course, there are many good schools. Every time we talk about radical school reform, and this is a very radical plan I have, you've got to make clear that within the public school system, there are fantastic schools that do a great job. Yes, of course, that's true. But overall, the, what I describe as the factory school system that we have in operation, which is basically a model invented in, in 19th century Prussia that was imported here, where you have these big schools and children taught the same thing in years um, according to their age and so on in a very kind of um, industrialized way, is just, just completely hopeless for preparing our children for the future, for the kinds of skills they need which are much less about acquiring knowledge and much more about character and how they operate and resilience and entrepreneurialism and problem-solving and creativity, etc. So I think above all, we need innovation into our school system, people setting up new schools that experiment with different ways of teaching children these skills. And so what I propose in this, and at the moment we have that a little bit, you have some innovation for example, through charter schools and so on, and in the private sector, near where I, where I live in Silicon Valley, and there's, there's a huge array of, of incredibly exciting new models of education being developed, but they're mostly in the private sector for the rich. I want that kind of experience for everyone. And the way to get there, I think, is what I describe as total school choice, not just a few extra options for parents alongside the bulk of the public school system, but completely removing government from the operation and the delivery of education, a total open market in schools where you have basically a voucher system um, that enables any parent to go to any school 
that in turn will inspire entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs and companies and parent groups of parents to set up schools that will deliver this innovative education that suits children much more precisely. So total school choice, that is the first idea. And, and it connects absolutely with what I was talking about in terms of putting power in people's hands. The second idea I wanted to mention actually applies that exact same model to healthcare. Just the same. You have incredible medical innovation around the corner, could save so much money, um, telemedicine, all these new developments. And yet we have this kind of factory approach to healthcare. You have these giant hospitals. And worse than that, in the delivery of healthcare, here in America particularly, you're actually moving towards a UK-style national health service in the sense of the consolidation that's happening in the healthcare marketplace with insurance companies, a small, tiny number of insurance companies completely dominating and hospital chains just buying up other hospitals. And, and there's, we talk about a market for healthcare in America, but there really is getting less and less of a market. And so on, at the same time, working people, those that we should have in mind when we think about populism, have massive financial insecurity as a result of the way that we approach health insurance. And I think there, too much of an ideological approach has been taken, where there's been this notion that you can't have anything resembling um, government-run healthcare, and therefore we can't even think about insurance and so on in the single-payer direction that would give people that kind of peace of mind that I think is so important, because we don't want state-run healthcare. No, we don't want state-run healthcare, but I think the problem is that we lump together two very distinct parts of the health policy debate. We treat health insurance the same as health care. Of course it's true that people want choice in health care, and it's going to lead to innovation if we can have choice and markets operating, just as in any other sector. But no one really wants choice in the insurance part of the equation. There you just want to be covered. You want to know that if you get sick, you're going to be treated. And so what I'm proposing in the book is universal free market health care, where, yes, we basically like the school system, where it's taxpayer-funded, but there's a total free market choice in terms of the actual delivery. Combining, I think, in an interestingly non-ideological way, some elements of the left populist argument, single-payer, and some elements of a free market approach. The third idea I wanted to talk about was relating to this topic of um, incomes and low wages and inequality. One of the things that, that, that I think should outrage conservatives more than it does is the way in which a key um, phrase that conservative politicians use over and over again about how they're for hardworking people who do the right thing and so on. The fact is that for many, many millions of those hardworking Americans who work full-time, very tough jobs, they can't live on what they earn. As a result, we have a giant welfare bureaucracy to top up their pay. This is what the working poor. I'm not talking about people who are out of the labor force. I'm talking about the millions who are actually working but also receive government welfare top-ups in one form or another, whether that's the earned income tax credit. I know a lot of people are a big fan of that, but it's still welfare, um, or food stamps, whatever it may be. Taxpayer 
top-ups because people can't live on what they earn. Now, I think conservatives should be outraged about that. What that really is, is a taxpayer subsidy to the employers. They pay their workers at a level that the workers can't live on, so the taxpayer tops it up. That's crazy. Now, the left populist approach, we've actually seen that in the last week, where Bernie Sanders and, and Roe Connor, I think, have introduced a bill focusing on this point. And what they say is, Amazon, to take an example, they pay their workers at a level that they can't live on, their pay gets topped up by the taxpayer to the tune of whatever it is, $150 million, let's say. I can't remember the figures. So let's tax them that amount. Let's tax them the amount of the subsidy. That's the kind of left populist approach. My approach in the book is a different one, um, which I call the business-friendly living wage, which is to say, let's require all employers to pay their employees the living wage wherever they are. Of course, that varies depending on housing costs and transportation. It's worked out. We can, we can look, there, there, there are organizations that work it out for each area. Pay the living wage, but in order to make that affordable for businesses, so they don't have to actually do something counterproductive, which is you know, bring in the robots to do the job of the more expensive workers or, and, and, and lead to unemployment. In order to make it affordable for business, let's cut their, pay, cut their taxes by the equivalent amount, payroll taxes or corporate taxes, whatever we can think of. So you basically reduce the tax burden on business so they can pay their workers more. In the process, you eliminate the whole need for that government welfare bureaucracy that's basically cycling money around the system with all this endless cost and bureaucracy. What's actually happening is that government is taking money from companies in the form of various taxes and then handing it back to their workers in the form of these welfare top-ups. That is ridiculous. Let's just get rid of it so that the relationship is simply between the worker and the employer, the business-friendly living wage. And then finally, I wanted to mention one other idea uh, of the 27 in this book, which is about family, which I would consider to be the single most important policy area of all. It's the area that I worked on most when I was working in 10 Downing Street. And I think, and I argue in the book, it, it, it's the foundational issue. Because if we can achieve something which is incredibly simple to say, but actually very hard to to achieve in practice, which is that every child should be raised in a stable, loving home. If we can just achieve that, so many of the social and economic problems that give rise to government intervention and, and regulation and taxpayer-funded services would just simply disappear. Now, lots of work has, has been done, great work, much of it coming from this place, about family breakdown and, and the incentives in various uh, government systems that perhaps encourage parents to raise children without being together. I don't want to make the whole argument about marriage. I suspect that we all agree with it. The evidence is in, as they say, in relation to climate, the science is in. It's very clear that it's better for, for children's opportunities and outcomes if they're raised in a home with two parents. It's very clear that marriage is a very strong commitment device that makes it more likely that parents stay together. This is not about that. This is not about 
moralizing or preaching. This is about something very practical, which is if you look at the data about when families break up, break down, um, you find something really interesting, which is the peak moment for uh, families with children to break up is in with, within the first year of the first child being born. And there's a very human, practical, pragmatic uh, reason for that, which is it's a very tough and stressful time, as anyone who's a parent will know. It's You don't get any sleep, you're arguing, you're, it's a nightmare for a lot of people, and particularly for people without the resources and the family connections to help out. And what we see, again, thinking about this in a practical, non-ideological, non-preachy way, is that there are real interventions that can help parents through that difficult time and make it much more likely that they stay together, which is overwhelmingly in the interest of them, their children, and society as a whole. And one example of that is actually a program that was, I mean, the, 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 the whole um, approach was pioneered in the UK, the health visitor service that was actually over 100 years old. The really brilliant, one of the best evaluated social policy interventions ever in the history of the world, actually, is the, is the Nurse Family Partnerships Program, which was created in Colorado, I think, in the late 70s. What, what, all, of, what all these interventions are basically about is, 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 is home visiting, is trained professionals, usually nurses, going into the home of parents with a, with, with a young child and just helping them with the practical and emotional questions that they have. And there's so much evidence that this is this transformatively um, different to all the other kinds of interventions that may be there or other services that parents may want to use, whether that's books or videos or whatever. There's something about that trusted person coming and helping you at this difficult time that makes a huge difference. Now, where these services are currently deployed, they're typically done in a sort of at-risk way. We're going to, they were part of Obamacare, actually, an enhancement of home visiting services, but for really troubled families, the at-risk is kind of a small proportion of the population. And that's fine, but actually, I think it would be transformative if this could be available to everyone. And that's why, in the book, I talk about a universal home visiting service, not necessarily delivered by the state, by government, local organizations, churches, all sorts of institutions. It's similarly to the approach in relation to health and education. Services can be guaranteed by the state, but delivered by the market in the form of private sector organizations or nonprofits or, or, or a combination of voluntary organizations. So just because something is universal and, and, and guaranteed by the state doesn't mean it has to be delivered by government. And home visiting is one of those things which I think could have a huge positive impact on working people, on families, and on all of these issues, income inequality and so on, that have led to this populist uprising. So that's just a flavor of the book. There's many more ideas, but well, I went through four, so my math is good enough to say there are 23 others in the book. Um, and if there are any topics that you want to raise that aren't covered by those four I've just touched on, happy to do that and happy to debate this, the four specific ideas. And most of all, would love to work with Heritage on this whole agenda, because I think it's incredibly important. And I think it's, 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 it's the way to really make some of the ideas and values that we all hold relevant and applicable in this new world of real political disruption and rapid change. So thank you very much.
thank you very much, uh, Steve, for a uh, terrific uh, summary of your of your book. And um, I think it's going to spark a, a lot of debate here in, in Washington, and we're delighted to be part of that here. Uh, and uh, before I, I open um, the floor to questions from the, the audience, just an opening question for you, Steve, on, uh, on Brexit. Uh, yes. and, um, and also based upon your many years of of experience working in, in Downing Street in the British government. Um, the, the Prime Minister's Chequers proposal has been very controversial mm. in Britain. It's split the Conservative Party. There's talk now of a potential leadership challenge to Theresa May um, from, the, uh, from the Brexiteer side of the, uh, the Conservative Party. Um, President Trump, when he uh, went to London in uh, in July was uh, critical of the the Chequers proposal, uh, saying that it could potentially threaten the possibility of a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. He later backtracked on those those comments, but but it was a, a very significant intervention by U.S. Uh, U.S. President. Um, could you um, give us your thoughts on the on the Chequers proposal and and what this means for for Brexit, but also uh, what what this means for the Prime Minister as well? Thank you. De delighted. No, question. delighted to do that. Um, a short summary in terms of the, 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 the verdict from the president. He was right and she was wrong. Um, and he should have stuck with his first answer. Um, let me go back a little bit um, to the campaign and then the immediate aftermath and then, and then catch up where we are. In the Brexit campaign, which I, we've been, by the way, I've lived in, in America and in California for six and a half years, so very much feel as if this is our home. Uh, but I did go back to the UK, as Niall mentioned, to, to campaign for Brexit. And in that campaign, there was a real um, coherent and consistent view put forward by the, the, the leaders of, the, if you like, on the, on the Conservative Party side, specifically myself, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. And we all made the argument for an open, outward-looking pro-enterprise powerhouse um, of a approach where we're free of the shackles of the EU, the UK is open to the world and true to its buccaneering enterprising roots. That was the sort of theme and the feel of the kind of Brexit that we all argued for. Then you have Theresa May, through various reasons, um, taking over, who was opposed to Brexit, she campaigned against it. And that set the tone for the whole process since then. And it seems to me as if what's been going on in the UK is that the political leadership and definitely the, the bureaucratic apparatus sees Brexit not as an opportunity to be seized and exploited, but as a problem to be mitigated and handled somehow. This disaster has to somehow be handled. We've got to make the best of the bad job. That's the attitude. So I remember early on when that attitude seemed to be taking hold, making an argument, actually I wrote a piece in the Sunday Times where the discussion at that time was about hard Brexit or soft Brexit. Hard Brexit was the clean break, let's just get out, don't worry about any kind of transition arrangements and, 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 and deals with the EU, let's just leave versus the soft Brexit was like, make, make it less of a, of a sudden break. And I said, that's not the point. I made the argument then, of course it needs to be a hard Brexit, because anything other than hard Brexit is not actually leaving. If you're still there 
kind of participating in the single market, kind of having a transition and sort of um, being a member but not really and being in, in some things and out of others. You're kind of in it. You don't have the freedom to take advantage of the opportunities of being outside. So I said, of course it has to be a hard Brexit. The real question is, is it an open or closed Brexit? Open meaning, let's engage with the world, let's roll out the red carpet for entrepreneurs from around the world that want to start their businesses in the UK. Let's cut corporation tax to 10% or zero and invite every business in the world to set up in the UK. Let's just really make the UK the number one destination for business investment and, and entrepreneurship and so on. Um, and that's the argument I made then. Uh, of course, none of that happened. And so we are where we are. We, and, and, the, and the checkers deal, I think, is worse than anyone could possibly have imagined in terms of ending up with, I don't know what the, the adjective would be, but I mean, it's certainly soft um, and worse in terms of not really leaving. Um, and also worse than that is that during this period, none of the actions have been taken that could have really made a long-term success and sent a signal to the world that this new UK is a fantastic place to do business and so on. There's been no cut in corporation tax, no investment in infrastructure, no effort to really um, go out into the world and, and sell the UK. It's just been this constant negativity. And the entire focus, it seems to me, of the, of the, of the British establishment has been on negotiating with the EU when most of the things that could have made a success of Brexit could have been done regardless of the EU. Second point, of course it's clear that the EU wants to make Brexit as painful as possible for the UK in order to deter other countries from leaving. Their entire incentive is to punish the UK for leaving. So the notion that you can negotiate a deal that's advantageous to the UK, I thought was always ridiculous. So my argument was just leave, just leave and figure it out. And all these arguments that you hear made about how well it'll be chaos and so on just turn out to be rubbish one after the other. One of my favorites is, I think someone's a, a serious person. I think it was, I can't remember if it was actually Tony Blair. I think it might have been, I don't know. A, you know, a serious political leader talked about planes falling out of the sky. That was the phrase that was used. Because if you leave the EU, then the air traffic control... The next day, Willie Walsh, the head of International Airlines Group now, isn't it, Not, that owns British Airways and I think Iberia, said, it's totally ridiculous, that'll never happen. We'll figure it out as an industry. We don't need the EU. So one after another, these scare stories about the consequences of just leaving are, um, are told. And because of the whole nature of the debate, I think, in the UK, of this sort of negativity, people believe them. And they want to believe them because they, they're in this mindset of this whole thing is a disaster. And so bringing us right up to date, I think that um, it would be in Britain's interest to not have the Chequers deal be the terms on which the UK leaves. And if the Chequers deal, if the only way of achieving that is to have a change of prime minister, then I think that is certainly what should happen. I don't know whether it will happen because I'm not connected to the um, current uh, ins and outs of the British Conservative Party, but I think an open Brexit, clean break, but above all, take those policy actions that would make the UK an attractive number one place in the world for, for business, cut corporate tax, invest in infrastructure, roll out the red carpet for entrepreneurs, 
all those things, that's actually more important than anything else. There's no sign of any of that happening right now. I think with a change of leadership, you might get that. Thanks very much, uh, Steve. Very, very well said. My um, point that we've made here at Heritage on, on many occasions um, on, on the Brexit uh, on the Brexit front, uh, and and of course a vitally important is issue for U.S. interests as well, uh, and very closely watched here in in Washington. I'd now like to uh, invite um, members of the audience to ask uh, ask questions, and um, please do identify yourself in any institutional affiliation. That you may uh, may have, and uh, so we're looking for opening um, question. Yes, so Robin Simcox, who's our Margaret Thatcher Fellow here at Heritage. Thank you. Um, and I, I was apologies if this has already been addressed. I, I was I was in a little late, but um, how to explain the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn, and is Jeremy Corbyn a populist? Apologies for another UK-based question, but um, I, I think that's absolutely part of the. Um, part of the populism story, um, I think there's two things. There's a substance and policy-based appeal, and then there's a, if you can believe it, a personality-based appeal. Um, on the substance and policy, I think the, this is another, you know, I think conservatives need to take this seriously. The economic hardship that working people, I use that term to describe the 80% or so of, of the population I described earlier, the non-beneficiaries of the elitist agenda of globalization, automation, centralization, and uncontrolled immigration. People who are not working in the knowledge economy in the urban centers. You know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's really important that we understand the deep, deep um, pain that's been caused over the years and the resentment at the evident inequality, the way riches have gone to the beneficiaries. And the, I, the, 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 I think one of the most important concepts here is the economic insecurity, this frightening sense that at any moment it could all come crashing down. I can't, but, you know, one unexpected bill could just derail my whole life. And, and actually, this is much more true in the U.S. You know, I'd literally be living in a car. That's a really, you know, remember the, 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 was it the Federal Reserve? Their study was a couple of years ago that, you know, I don't know, it was a huge proportion of Americans couldn't meet the $400 bill. It's an unexpected expense. That economic insecurity, and of course exacerbated by all those changes, by the automation, the globalization, you know, the, 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 the way that, you know, temporary work has taken over. I mean, there's a whole set, sections in my book, you know, the non-compete clauses, which means that incomes have been kept down because... Um, nearly 20% of American workers are subject to non-competes. This was designed for the sort of top employees with, with unique scientific knowledge or whatever. And now they're being applied to people who work in McDonald's. Um, so there's a real unfairness about, about the experience most people have of the economy. And I think in the UK, you know, the, 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 all the, and, and Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party really spoke to that. The, 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 Zero hours contracts, a huge issue where people just, you know, they're treated like not in, in a really inhuman way by employers. Um, and yeah, that's good for them, but for the people, it's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have work. I'm not. It's it, this insecurity and unfairness that I think plagues so many people. He really spoke to that. 
And yes, you can say, well, that's left-wing socialism, whatever. But um, that's what people, you know, they, they haven't had. You know, we, we may like to think about the Thatcher Revolution, the Reagan Revolution, conservative ideas, lifting working people. And yes, some of that happened. But it's certainly not true today. Um, so that I think there's a real substantive reason for the appeal of very left-wing messages to not just a core kind of whatever it is, 30% of voters who may vote Labour, but like right across the board. And then the personality aspect of it, I think is just the same as, I mean, it's a, it's a weird comparison to make, as Donald Trump, um, in the sense of here's someone who's just not like the usual slick politicians. He's a, we like the fact that he looks a mess and, and stumbles and does these weird things and rolls his eyes in interviews and just seems authentic, seems like he's saying what, what he thinks. And we're sick of all these people who just sound the same and look the same and say the same platitudes. So I really understand that appeal. The other side, you know, conservatives need to get that. Otherwise, and yeah, don't get me wrong, I think he's, you know, many of the, those left populist policies would be deeply damaging and actually end up hurting working people. But we've got to understand the appeal of them, and this is really what I'm trying to do with the book, and develop our own response that is... I wouldn't call it conservative because that feels a little, little ideological, but certainly pro-market. I think that's a really big characteristic of, of, of my ideas. They're pro-market. We need to kind of, maybe that's a better, it's kind of pro-market populism. But, that, but real market, sorry, I'm now drifting off, but you know, another really big theme in the book, in my book, is, is antitrust and competition. I mean, so many industries are now non-competitive. They're just stitched up by a couple of giant companies. That's not conservative. We need a pro-market argument for much greater competition. Sorry, I'll stop there. Thank you, Steve. Um, and thank you for all the work that you did on the Brexit vote as well. I was one of the eight founding members of Economists for Brexit, so it was uh, fun being on the same side of you in that campaign. Um, I just want to push back a little bit, perhaps, on the living wage idea something that I argued a lot uh, with uh, some of your former bosses uh, about in the UK too. Um, so ask a simple principle question, then perhaps outline a different approach. Why is it the responsibility of companies um, to compensate employees for their rents and fuel bills as opposed to pay them for the value of the work that they undertake for the business? Um, and wouldn't it be better as a first step, a kind of first do no harm uh, principle applied, to actually look at undoing some of the genuine uh, negative effects of vested interests in terms of um, housing and zoning laws that drive up the cost of housing, childcare regulations, which um, uh, drive up the cost of childcare, food protectionism that drives up grocery bills. Wouldn't it be better as an approach for government to actually undo all of these damaging uh, policies that drive up costs rather than lamenting that companies don't pay people enough to meet those costs? Yeah. Great, a great question, and I agree with nearly all of, of what you said. In fact, in another part of the book, I talk about another one of the ideas is about housing. I think we'd be very much in sympathy there, where I literally, I think I, I, think I call it green-brown zoning. Um, I was trying to think of a name. <laughs> it's the old sort of policy one can be trying to think of a name for everything. Green-brown zoning, which is basically to say every piece of land should either be marked for development or nature, and if it's development... That's it. That's the only you build what you want. There's, there's no you get rid of all controls and, and just leave it to 
individual um, uh, communities to decide. Um, there's a really interesting model that we did actually implement in the UK government that worked very well, which is neighbourhood planning, neighbourhood zoning, where actually turns out if you give neighbourhoods control over what gets built in their area, they don't behave like NIMBYs. They're NIMBYs when they feel like it's being imposed on them by some external bureaucracy they have no real control over. Anyway, I don't want to digress into housing, but I totally agree with you about housing and there's those other cost points. The, I would say, in relation to the cost the cost of living aspect, yes, we should do that, but those often structural reforms are going to take a long time to bear fruit. And in the meantime, you've got this, this is why I keep coming back to the sort of pragmatic approach. In the meantime, while we're waiting for all that to happen, if it ever does, you've got people who are really hurting. And you've got this welfare bureaucracy that, that we should hate. And the other principle I would articulate back to you is if you work full-time, you should be able to live on what you earn. Now, you can say, I don't agree with that principle, but I do. I mean, it's just a disagreement. I don't think we're going to settle it just by intellectual inquiry. I just think it's an assertion. It's clearly an assertion, and I think it's one that kind of rings true for most people. And, and so it's a kind of, well, what's, the, what is, what's worse? Is it that employers should, should make sure that their workers can live on what they earn, Bearing in mind, yes, we do want to reduce the cost of living in all the ways you mentioned. Or have the government do it through this bureaucracy, which I think makes people dependent. And that's the other bit of this that I don't like, which is that the relationship between employee and employer, employer feels like it can be a fair and reasonable relationship. But when you're, put, when you're, when you're dependent on the government for your life to be able to live, I think that's worse. That's really why I got to this position. I think it's worse to have, it's not, my proposal isn't ideal either. I agree with that. But I think it's better than the alternative where you have millions of people dependent on the state, even though they're working full time. Hey, thank you, Steve. Uh, Vijay Menon with the Heritage Foundation. Um, and I do agree that um, a worker who's working full time should be able to provide uh, for his or her family. Um, but I would also like to um, uh, maybe bring up a couple concerns about uh, the living wage idea. Um, one, and how in your mind uh, would that be different uh, from a taxpayer subsidy um, in the form of like a welfare uh, program? Uh, and second, would this be um, opt-in? Could you envision it being an opt-in for businesses? And if not, are you concerned uh, that this may increase the role of government uh, in a different way? Well, it's, it's different from the, the, the government subsidy because it's, the government isn't involved other than requiring it. It's not, uh, you're not getting any money from the government. There's no transaction, whether that's topping up through food stamps or whatever, or earned income tax. It's just, it's, the, the government's just not part of it. Um, in terms of the, um, the, I'm sorry, you were talking about the operation of it. Yeah, sorry. So that's great. I think that um, I, I, again, these are ideas for discussion. I actually um, float some ways of maybe thinking about the implementation. For example, you may want to exclude younger workers under twenty-five, or so, you know, just like with the minimum wage. You may want to use it to um, uh, incentivize other goals. For example, we talk all the time about how marriage is penalised in the welfare system. Well, maybe this is an opportunity to reward marriage in the 
living wage system, if you like, that you, 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 you look at it that way because your costs are higher if you've got a family and so on. So you get this if you're um, uh, married. But maybe that's too bureaucratic. These are just ideas to discuss. I think that the, um, but the, in order to be real, it would need to be a mandate, just like the minimum wage is. That's the law. You have to pay the minimum wage. Obviously, this needs to be a decentralized approach because the cost of living varies greatly. Um, and so this would be applied on a even city-by-city city basis, not just state-by-state. State. But it would be the law. That's my concept of it. Uh, yes, a uh, question from our British contingent here. Uh, AJ, here we go. Sorry to not diversify the accents enough. I apologize. Um, so I'm Jamie Johnson, Conservatives Abroad here in D.C. Steve, thanks very much. Um, you must get this question over dinner and in events like this all the time. But if you got the call from John Kelly, you're asked to perform a similar role to what you performed in Downing Street. What would be your three-point strategy for the president um, in the coming years to execute his first term, but also to line him up for the second? Execution of the strategy is a different conversation, but I'm thinking about your your ideas. If you yeah, that's a great question. I think that the um, I'm not sure I'll get to a coherent list of three. I need a bit more time on that. I, but I can, I do think that it, one of the most important things that he seemed to convey was I'm not going to be like the other politicians. I'm going to shake things up and do things differently. And one of one of the things that that would really that would really demonstrate that was true is, is this clear delivery of promises, and so I think that actually there's two things that are perhaps less structurally important, but really significant in terms of saying you see I I I was different I did what I said. If you think back to their campaign. The, the, the most famous promises, the, the, the most simple and famous phrases and promises that resonated, drain the swamp and build the wall, were two of them. And I think that I'll get, there's actually something more important I'll get to. I'm, I'm, only, I'm sort of getting them out of the way, and I'm going to focus on the, what I think is the most important. I think that just delivering those two things, one is easier than the other. One is you know, not easier, but build the wall is very straightforward in, in that sense. Like, I think that whatever we may think of it, it just needs to be done. And I, I've always been a supporter of it. I think it's a very practical and sensible thing to do in terms of controlling immigration. So get it done. I cannot understand why it's so difficult to get it done. I, tr I truly don't. Um, the, the argument about Congress funding it, I don't understand. Um, there's... The, the federal government that spends so much money on other things. I just don't understand why that can't be done immediately. Drain the swamp, I think, was resonant because everyone knows, everyone understands how deep the corruption is. It's true that, and I've talked about this on my show, when you, they actually had a, a list of drain the swamp pledges um, about lobbyists and so on, and, and there's about four or five things on there, and no three of the five, I think, have, have technically been done. But I think anyone in Washington, you talk to anyone in Washington, has the culture changed? Has the, no, not really. I mean, in, the, in my book, I've got a number of ideas for how you really start to attack the corruption. For example, banning conflict donors. In other words, making it uh, impossible, requiring legislators to recuse themselves 
from any legislative activity that relates to the interests of any of their donors. Now, the minute you even say that, you know the response is, well, why would I, why would I give the money if I didn't get, <laughs> if it wasn't relevant? Um, why would I be on that committee if I couldn't raise money from the relevant businesses? That's how it works. But it's total corruption. I mean, the, the Financial Services Committee that regulates Wall Street, the members, they're almost entirely funded by Wall Street. It's total corruption. Doing something about that, really getting to the heart of the corruption, would, would, would be powerful. But the real one, I think, the big one, is if you think about why he was elected and why he might be re-elected, I think the overwhelming thing was get the economy moving, jobs, American manufacture, that whole story of an economic revival. And I think that you're certainly seeing some of that happen. That's great. More of that, more deregulation. Lower, I, I was disappointed. I mean, remember President Trump in the campaign, the, the tax plan, this is one of the first moments I thought, wow, this guy's really serious. We should, we should you know, take this seriously. The second thing he, the second policy document that he published was a tax plan with 15% corporate tax. Not the 21, so go for that. You know, the whoosh of business confidence that you get from this, we're seeing it now. But the other element that's missing that we haven't seen, and it's really important because it connects to the issue of incomes and wages and, and the, and the, and the experience of working Americans, who, who, those who put him into office, particularly the, the blue-collar workers, is, is infrastructure. And the connection with infrastructure and wages is really important because the reason that we've had this, um, in parallel with the wage stagnation, you've had a sort of productivity slowdown or, or stagnation, and economists are scratching their heads about why, what's going on with productivity. And one of the factors in productivity is investment and infrastructure, because if, you, if the workers are more productive, you pay them more. And... So the, the, the infrastructure promise was not just good in terms of building uh, things right now that create jobs. Actually, really good infrastructure creates, leads to productivity, which can lead to wage rises. You're actually seeing that right now from the private sector. Real big increases in business investment since the tax tax cuts since the corporate tax cuts, which is, I think, contributing, it's already starting to contribute to the wage increases, but the long-term effects will be much more because the business investment leads to the capital expenditure, which leads to greater productivity with wages. So I think that well, that would be something around the infrastructure story funded in, you know, I'm not talking about sort of taking on more debt to do it. I think there's there's interesting ways you can do it through uh, private financing, but, but getting it done, I think, would be, actually, I'll pr probably put that as number one. Thank you. Excellent question. And uh, we have, let's see, I'll, I'll take um, a question over there first, and then sorry, I'll... Can I just make yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, yes. a really yeah. important point on the infrastructure? I was really upset that they didn't do that first, because one of the things, that, and I think the whole presidency could have, could have gone a very different direction, because that was, interestingly, one of the areas where you had political agreement, Democrats and Republicans. Now, probably disagreement about how you finance it, Sure, you know the Democrats. Yeah, more taxes. You know, fine. But you can you can come to some kind of agreement. I remember talking to John Delaney, who I think was the first. He's um, running for president, one of the first to declare on the Democrat side, and he had a really smart idea about how to finance the infrastructure through corporate tax cuts and so on, and the offshore money and etc. So you could get creative agreement between Democrats and Republicans on this infrastructure point. And that sent, and of course, we've, that it hasn't turned out like that. And we've got this incredibly divisive politics right now. 
Um, the infrastructure thing could be a way of bringing people together and just getting that sense of national purpose and unity back. Thank you. Yes, Jeff, please go ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Steve, for uh, your presentation today and uh, the four pillars. Uh, the one that I'm particularly interested in is uh, the family. So my name is Dr. Chapman, Lynn Chapman. I'm a recent transplant here to the uh, uh, DMV area from Jacksonville, Florida. And as I came aboard the, uh, the area, I just noticed there is a, a vast difference, as you already mentioned, of income disparities between communities. I live in the Arlington Crystal City community, and as I drive through areas such as the D.C. area, and I'm not talking about the good part of D.C., I really see some of the issues that our country is facing. And someone has said, or coined this phrase before, so goes the family, we can say so goes the nation. And so going the nation, we can almost say that some of the issues that we see in our country today, whether it be from poverty, income, crime, is directly uh, correlated to issues that we have with the family. My question then becomes, or to you, um, is I'm looking at, and you, you mentioned uh, one point that um, every child should have a stable home. And, and, and wouldn't that be a beautiful thing if every child had a stable home? Yeah. My particular question is now, if you look in our community across the nation, there is a vast amount of kids in uh, the foster care system. I'm 100% for reunification of children with their families, but I have a fundamental issue with when we reunify and we have uh, parents who are not equipped, but the government mandates that at some point or sometime we have to give these kids back to those families, whether they are broken or not. And I'm not talking the kids, but the family, the, the parents. Some of your thoughts and ideas on fixing that issue. Great. I mean, you, I could talk all day about it. It is, it is the number one issue. I completely agree with everything you've said. Um, as I said, I spent a lot of time working on it. And in fact, I'm about to, I'm just at the beginning of the process of launching a new business in this exact area, in, in the exact area you're talking about. And I talk about it a bit in the book. And it's, again, it's something that, that when you first hear about it, conservatives might think, oh, no, I don't like this. This is nanny state. This is not, not, not what we should all be about. And it's a term, even as I'm about to say it, I know it's really off-putting. I understand that, okay? But just bear with me, which is parenting education. So I spent a lot of time working on these issues in, in the government, as I mentioned. Um, I set up a number of programs, one called the Troubled Families uh, Program, Troubled Families Unit, which was all about really, really deep, you know, very hands-on intervention for the small number, about 150,000 families in the UK who were just totally going off the rails, where, where total dysfunctions that you just, you wouldn't believe. I spent time visiting, you, you, it's so shocking. Remember, by the way, when we did an audit of these families, one of the interesting things, most with single parent families, um, and I remember what, one of the things that just took me aback was, when you get the, the, the average number of children in these families was five. Just so chaotic. And, you know, the, it's just unbelievable. I don't want to go into the details. It's actually very upsetting. Um, so we actually started to do something about it. By the way, all these families on the receiving end of multiple interventions by government. And that's the problem. They have totally disconnected. They have about 16 different bits of government poking at them and coming in and there's a social worker and the health worker and the this and the that and no one takes responsibility and no one really um, 
is focused on actually helping that family turn their lives around. And so we, we, our approach was to take that, take that all away and have one dedicated family worker per family who would literally go there every day, like, are you, you know, get them out of bed, then get up in the morning and just do all that stuff. So this was the really dysfunctional. So that was a very aggressive government program. Now you'd say, oh, well, that's the nanny state. Yes, for this particular group, that's exactly what they need is a nanny. Um, so I would totally defend that. More broadly, um, parents uh, right across the scale, I put myself in that category because I went along to see is part of the policy research. I spent a lot of time in parenting classes. And typically, parenting classes are required of parents when their children go off the rails. Obviously, the courts may impose it. Like, you know, there's your teenagers got in trouble. Um, they're going to have some juvenile punishment. And you, the parent, are going to go to a parenting class because you've done a bad job. They're seen as a punishment. When you actually go to them, which I've spent many, many hours in them all over the place, um, a really consistent thing emerges, which is that the parents say, it's almost the same words they use, which is, I was dragged, kick, maybe this is an English expression, I was dragged kicking and screaming here, didn't want to come, but almost from the first moment, excuse me, um, I, if I'd have had this seven years ago, my life would have been completely different. There's a real value to it, actually. And the value is not so much in the instruction. It's typically the ones that work are, are in group settings. And yes, there's a coach who gives tips about I don't know, how to get the baby to sleep, how to get your teenager to get off their screens, how to install discipline in the household, how to enforce bedtimes, all the things that, 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 that you are part of, of a stable, loving household. So there is practical instruction. But the real power is in the conversation, is in the parents actually talking and listening to other parents and, and realizing that the struggles they have are not just their own, that everyone finds this stuff difficult. And it sort of they, it lifts a burden. And they, and they actually talk to each other. It's really interesting. It's kind of therapeutic, um, very powerful uh, process. And... There's evidence now from social science that parenting style is a bigger, like the way you literally do the job of being a parent is the single biggest determinant of children's life chances, more than the economic status of the family. It's the way the parents parent that makes the difference. We're wrong to think that that is innate, that it can't be taught, that it can't be improved. It can, and I've seen it. And so another idea in the book is to, again, not the government delivering this, faith groups, community groups, nonprofits, social enterprises, private sector. I'm, I'm literally about to start a private sector business that will do this. Okay? This is not about the government doing it. But our goal as policymakers, this is what I tried to implement in the UK, was, would, was to make parenting education, turn it around, from being what it is today, which is a minority thing that's seen as somehow negative, a punishment for bad parents, to make it something that is a positive thing for all parents, an aspirational thing. And so we started a parenting voucher program in the UK. I mean, it was a pilot, and then we moved to the States before it really kind of took off. But that, I think, is, is, is the genuine answer. Again, you know, I put it in a book about populism, because in the end, this is about helping working people and working families and 
it's very pragmatic. It's not ideological. It's just how do we help? What is, what's, the, what's an answer that works? Parenting education really works. And it's something that I would like to see spread much more widely than it is at the moment and, and turn from a negative to a positive. So I don't know if that helps. OK. Thank you. And uh, I'm afraid we have time for just one more uh, question. I'm going to call on Ambassador Terry Miller, who heads our Center for International Trade and Economics here at Heritage. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation, and um, I really want to applaud your uh, your focus on the family and on, on education, because I think that, in fact, it is pathologies in those two areas that underpin almost all of the problems that we face as a society. Uh, but I want to push back on the idea about a living wage um, or, or this economic idea, because I, I don't really think that... Um, holds up uh, contact with reality uh, uh, in the world uh, because uh, you yourself talked about how uh, wages increase with productivity, uh, but your proposal, in fact, would disconnect um, productivity and wage rates uh, at the lower end of the scale because you would wind up paying everyone um, up to a certain level the, the same wage rate, um, essentially. And um, the problem we have in our society is uh, going back to family and education, uh, that you have a large number of potential workers who are coming out of the school system. Um, they can't do basic mathematics. Um, they're, uh, in some cases, practically illiterate, uh, certainly in standard English. Um, and yet you would uh, say that um, any business that hires those people uh, is required to pay them whatever the living wage is. And um, by the estimates I've seen, it's significantly higher uh, than today's um, minimum wages or even higher than the proposed uh, $15 uh, minimum wage that's uh, so popular in the United States right now. So you're compressing the wage rates at the bottom of the scale. You're forcing businesses to hire people that don't have the basic skills to be productive in any way whatsoever. It sounds very appealing uh, to say that anybody that works full time should should earn a living wage. But I would say working at what? I'd, I'd love to be a poet and spend 40 hours a week writing poetry. Uh, does somebody owe me a, a living wage uh, if, if I choose to do that? Or, or do we take away the choice from people uh, to work at whatever um, endeavor they, they choose. I'm so excited about your question. So um, let me respond to the, the poet point. Let's start with that. No, it wouldn't apply because you, you wouldn't be employed as, a, as, an, as an artist. And by the way, I'll tell you what's coming your way if we don't have a really constructive alternative answer is much worse. I mean, I can see you all, you know, suspicious of this idea, the, the business-friendly living age, fine. But um, what's the, the alternative that's coming down the track is the universal basic income, which totally, no, never mind detaching uh, wages from productivity, that detaches wages from work. At least my one is connected to work. Um, that is seriously, I mean, look, it's, it's happening, the universal basic income. It actually is being implemented as we speak in California and other parts of the country. I totally disagree with it, precisely for the reason that it, de it detaches work from pay. My idea is not a, it's not, it's not a universal income, I mean, it, it's a flaw. It's not a, um, it's, 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 so the, the productivity point is well taken, but it's a flaw. It's not going to be for everyone, and so you'll still be able to have those pay differentials based on performance and productivity. 
Um, I think that the the very good point you made about the skills and 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 contribution to the to the workforce of the of the young people moving in who can't don't have the skills you describe. I think that's a, that's right, and therefore I would be, as I think I mentioned earlier, open to saying, well, this is just for over twenty fives or, so, or over thirties or people who are married or have children. I think there's all sorts of ways of making it less, um, you know, not not have those disincentive effects. But one thing I'd say is. I mean, can anyone get there is there is a major employer in this country right now. I mean, you're right. It's much higher um, the living wage than the, the, even we talk about fifteen dollar minimum wage. And the living wage typically is you know you, you talk about twenty dollars an hour, that kind of level or more. Um, there is a really big employer in America who pays as a matter of policy, as a matter of business practice that they believe um, for social reasons um, that pays a living wage to all its workers. People know who that is. No, well, maybe there's, well, there's one I know, and no, and private sector employer and it may surprise you. No, definitely not McDonald's. It's Costco, right? Their whole business is a cheap and and, and margins matter hugely, and it's retail and so on, and they're under threat from Amazon and whatever. They pay a living wage as a matter of policy, way higher than any other employer. And they have a stable workforce and loyal employees and all the rest of it. So, it's not impossible to make it work. Um, I definitely agree that it's not ideal, and and I'm very and I absolutely take seriously all the objections that we've heard. But but it, you know it's not this idea is not in isolation. There are there are alternatives. There's what's happening right now, which is this welfare dependency, which I hate, and the bureaucracy associated with that. And there's what could be coming from the other side, which is universal basic income, which I also hate. So, you know, I'm just trying to be practical. Well, it's been a, a tremendous uh, discussion ranging from uh, poetry to draining the swamp to Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. And uh, I'd like to, to thank uh, Steve Hilton for a, a wonderful uh, discussion today. And I'm sure uh, we will continue um, to discuss your ideas for you know, the months, the years to, years to come. Hopefully you'll uh, come back to Heritage uh, again in the very near near future and uh, also like to thank everybody for joining us today and uh, thank you as well to all our viewers on C-SPAN today uh, and we look forward to um, uh, hosting you all again at Heritage in the, in the very near future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, and uh, before I forget, uh, Steve will be signing um, copies of his new book, Outside. So if anyone would like to um, have their copy signed by Steve.